When the stranger's crimes were first discovered, they called him a ghoul. Later, when they started calling him a ghost, he may still have been very much alive, but living in the shadows, eyes to the ground, not unlike a ghost. Better a wandering spirit than a ghoul. Years later, when the others who'd been drinking in that same Montana saloon with him finally realized who the stranger was, it was too late. They gave a cursory alert to the authorities, but by then the man had a three-day head start into the wilderness. It was the little things that made the stranger stand out. He wore his dark hair long and shaggy, and it hung into his face, obscuring his eyes. It obscured his forehead, too, lest anyone read the words crudely tattooed there. He'd spoken in a low voice, slowly and deliberately. He couldn't hide that he had an accent, but it was ambiguous. Listeners couldn't quite pin down his mother tongue, only that it wasn't English. A few of them there at the saloon were still disgusted by what he'd done and were desperate to hunt him down and turn him in, but most of the other whiskey swillers didn't care except to think it was interesting. The whole incident was so strange that news of the man's ghoulish activities had carried all the way to the wilds of Montana. Hell, if anything, they wished he'd stuck around just so they could satisfy their curiosity. How had he escaped from that island, anyway? They wished that they'd seen the tattoo, that they'd asked him to lift the curtain of his hair. It was rare, then, to see a facial tattoo on a white man, and if you did, it was usually the letters H.T., horse thief. A longer phrase would have been something to see. A regular at the end of the bar had a sister in Salt Lake City, and he insisted that the nervous stranger couldn't possibly have been the same man. He was dead, the man declared, for his own brother-in-law had seen the ghost walking along the lakeshore, a lantern in one hand, a shovel in the other, and the things he'd stolen from the dead laid over his shoulder. They didn't agree, but they talked about him a while in that saloon in Montana, hundreds of miles from Salt Lake City. The stranger had been a nobody there, a lowly gravedigger, but now people knew the name of Jean-Baptiste. They knew he was a grave robber, as the tattoo attested, a ghoul, and maybe a ghost. Welcome to another episode of Southwest Gothic. I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya, and on this podcast, I share strange and spooky tales out of the American Southwest. Pull up a chair to my virtual kitchen table, but hang on to your boots because this story's about a man who tried to get ahead by stealing shirts off the backs of the dead, and the kinda cruel, definitely unusual punishment he got for it. This is the tale of Jean-Baptiste, who robbed the dead as they lay in their graves, and whose specter may still wander the shores of the Great Salt Lake itself. Obviously, I like this story enough to share it with you, but honestly, I wavered on how well it fit into the scope of my program here on Southwest Gothic. For his own part, Jean-Baptiste, the pitiable grave robber, fits very comfortably into the assortment of odd Southwestern personalities we've discussed so far. But his story is set in Utah, in Salt Lake City, and that merits a momentary sidestep to talk a bit about that setting. Utah may sit in the geographical Southwest, 
But thanks to its social and cultural histories, it's unlike the West that surrounds it in significant ways. Historically speaking, other residents of the West were the indigenous people who'd settled the area before anyone thought to write down those migration stories, followed later by foreign and colonizing adventurers, treasure seekers, explorers, entrepreneurs, and opportunists. And let's not forget those who, for a variety of reasons, headed west to reinvent themselves with shiny new identities that allowed them to hide from the responsibilities attached to the older, tarnished ones. When we talk about archetypal American attributes like the spirit of exploration and rugged individualism, we draw our examples largely from periods of westward expansion. Then there's Utah. It's in the West, and its landscape is stunningly southwestern, but its history has more in common with, say, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Many of the early English settlers to that area were religious separatists, strict, conservative, and puritanical, who crossed the Atlantic to establish an isolated, highly regulated sort of New Jerusalem, a city on a hill. Religious fervor in New England ebbed and flowed over time, but that same Protestant stoicism was part of the underlying structure that propped up the new American nation in its growing pains. Two centuries after the Mayflower landed, New England was awash in a spirit of religious revival, and one new sect born out of it was a group known colloquially as the Mormons. While some of the faith's doctrines diverged from mainstream Christian thinking, the early adherents of the new sect were overwhelmingly New Englanders, direct cultural descendants, and sometimes blood descendants, of the Puritans who had fled persecution in England. The Mormons were persecuted too, driven ever farther westward until, in the mid-1840s, the decision was taken to cross the Mississippi into the frontier. They made an exodus into Mexican territory that was largely desert and largely unknown, and at the time, outside the borders of the United States, and therefore out of reach of the government that persecuted their beliefs and practices. Arriving in the valley of the Great Salt Lake in 1847, the Mormons laid out and built a city on the south and eastern shores of that otherworldly saline lake. They called it their Zion, but the early buildings are much like those you'd have found back east. The Mormons built their world apart, their new Jerusalem, their city on a hill, where they could go about the business of being God's chosen people without interference. They perceived themselves as separate from the world, separate from others in the West, and they thought of and preserved their community before themselves. In many ways, 19th century Utah was an island of the old Puritan East, struggling to define and preserve itself partly by sheltering itself against a rapidly changing and pragmatic West that surrounded it on all sides. To be clear, I'm talking less about religion and more about a culture that grew up around religion. I'm also talking about the 19th and early 20th centuries. Utah's changed a good deal, but those early Utah Mormons wore their persecution as a badge of honor, with their Puritan roots showing through. The aspects of culture and religious behavior that served to differentiate early Mormon settlers in Utah from the outside world and the rest of the Southwest also acted as homogenizing and binding agents to unite their community from within. Those early Mormons were in, but not of, the West. In the end, as your ears now attest, I decided to share Jean-Baptiste's story. It's just too interesting, for one. 
How can I turn down the story of a grave robber who became a ghost? On top of that, there are the elements of isolation and othering. The Mormon settlement removed itself from the world, yes, but then there are the increasing degrees to which Jean-Baptiste was isolated within a separatist culture. Then there's the Great Salt Lake. The geography and geology may be beautiful and fascinating, but unless you're a brine shrimp, it's an inhospitable place. Is it any wonder Jean-Baptiste's spirit is said to be an unhappy one? That isolated religious community, that garden in the desert, was the world Jean-Baptiste encountered when he arrived in Salt Lake City around 1860. But who was this wanderer who called himself Jean-Baptiste? For as meticulous as Mormons are about record-keeping, we know surprisingly little about Jean-Baptiste. It's unclear whether he was a member of the Mormon Church or not. The 1860 census says he was born in Ireland in 1813, but other sources say he was a French immigrant, or Bohemian. In any case, he didn't cross the Atlantic to get to Salt Lake. He went the other way around the globe, possibly stopping in Venice for a time before heading down under. It's unknown how long he was in Australia and under what circumstances, but he'd lived in Castleman and might have been working the gold fields there. In 1855, he boarded a ship in Melbourne in the company of Mormon immigrants headed for California to start their overland journey to Utah Territory. Jean-Baptiste didn't follow them right away. He lingered in San Francisco a while before eventually making his way to the Salt Lake Valley sometime in 1859 or 1860. Perhaps because he was unskilled, or because his English was poor, or because he wasn't a Mormon, the only work Jean-Baptiste was able to secure was as a gravedigger at the city cemetery. He fixed up a little shack at one corner of the graveyard and lived there quietly, tending to the graves. He might have continued his quiet life indefinitely if it hadn't been for Moroni Clausen. I've talked up the righteous community spirit the Mormons were cultivating in Salt Lake City, but they were honest enough with themselves that they had a small police force to check the criminal element among them. Whether Clausen was a petty thug or a heroic subversive, I don't know, but the circumstances of his ultimate crime suggest he suffered from a fatal combination of righteous indignation and poor impulse control. Moroni Clausen, you see, had a bone or two to pick with the U.S. federal government, and the nearest federal official made himself a very convenient target. When they emigrated, the Mormons had given themselves a reprieve from federal oversight, but it hadn't lasted. When they fled to the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, religious persecution came at them not just from individuals, but also from local, state, and federal officials in the United States. The Salt Lake Valley was Mexican territory in 1847, but Mexico City was thousands of miles away, and they had larger problems on their hands than illegal immigrants who wanted to farm the desert so they left the Mormons alone. When much of the Southwest became U.S. territory with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the Mormons were once again subject to federal scrutiny. Geographic isolation counted for something, but all the same, Washington appointed territorial officials to travel west and rein in the separatists, many of whom were U.S. citizens. These officials were not Mormon and not sympathetic to them, and the Utahns received them about as warmly as your pessimistic assumptions say they did. 
suffice to say, there was conflict. Moroni Clausen, for one, was a hothead aligned with the more vocal critics of the federal presence in Utah. For a few weeks in 1861, the Lincoln-appointed territorial governor was an unpopular soul named John Dawson. He was from Indiana, where he'd been a newspaper editor and later a congressman. Those career experiences had failed to teach him appropriate sexual politics, because some things never change. There was predictable outrage when he crudely propositioned an attractive widow or two upon his arrival in Utah. Unsuccessful in smoothing over his faux pas, Dawson left his post after only three weeks. He hadn't made it safely out of the territory just yet, though. Young Moroni Clausen and six of his drinking buddies decided that Governor Dawson deserved a proper beatdown, and so they intercepted his coach. They pulled him from it and beat him half to death and, legend has it, half castrated him. The governor may have been a lecherous skis, but assault of a federal official is still a federal crime. The young men's violence set up a situation where the federal government would have been justified in pouring out wrath on Utah territory. Again. So, the local law went after the seven young men. Most were apprehended quickly, but Moroni Clausen made a run for it. The manhunt was heated, and it ended with a Salt Lake City police officer named Henry Heath shooting and killing Clausen. Heath was beside himself. He'd been doing his job, acting in the interest of public safety, but he felt terrible about Clausen's death. Circumstances rubbed salt in that wound when nobody came forward to claim Clausen's body. It turned out to be a communication issue, but in the meantime, it was expedient that they put Clausen's unembalmed body in the ground. In an effort at restitution, Officer Heath purchased a suit so that Clausen could have proper burial clothes and not be laid to rest in the tatters he'd worn as a fugitive. Heath also paid for the burial. They interred Clausen in the city cemetery, where odd, quiet Jean-Baptiste dug the grave. Shortly thereafter, Clausen's family made their way into town to claim his body. They'd had another grave prepared where he could be buried near family, and they arranged to have the body exhumed and transported. It's unclear how or why the coffin was opened, but it was, and Clausen's already devastated family was further distressed to find their brother and son lying face down in his coffin, stark naked, every inch of his mottled, decaying flesh on display. They took their indignation to the police, assuming it was a deliberate last insult to the deceased. Heath countered that he himself had bought a suit of clothes for Clausen's internment, and after a bit of angered confusion on all sides, they realized that the worst possibility was likely the truth. Moroni Clausen had received a decent burial. The disrespect came later, when someone had reopened the grave and the coffin, stripped the body, then dumped the nude corpse carelessly back into its box before reburying it. Who would go to such trouble to insult Clausen's memory? And why? They questioned the sexton, who knew nothing, but he suggested they speak with Jean-Baptiste, since he lived on site and was more likely to have seen something. When the police arrived, Jean-Baptiste wasn't home, but his wife was. 
Except for the fact that they've only been married for a matter of months, we don't know much about his wife. We don't know if she was a partner in Jean-Baptiste's side gig, or how much she knew about it at all. At any rate, she didn't conceal the boxes and piles of clothing that crowded the shack. Some were clean and neatly folded. Some sat in untidy jumbles. Some still bore the dirt and other residues of the graves from which they'd been taken. It took Officer Heath only a moment to identify the suit he'd bought for Moroni Clausen's burial. There was shock and outrage and disgust as the police and the Clausen family connected the dots. Jean-Baptiste, it seemed, was supplementing his meager gravedigger's income as a supplier to the second-hand clothing market. His source was the graveyard he'd been entrusted with. Far from a respectful caretaker, he'd made a practice of reopening coffins and sometimes the graves themselves in order to harvest clothing from the recently deceased. He then cleaned it and sold it. Now, before you go build a bonfire to incinerate every ironic graphic tee or ugly sweater you've ever picked up at a thrift store, let's talk about clothing manufacture in the 19th century. In the 21st century, and for that matter, most of the 20th, we take it for granted that we can walk into a store and buy mass-produced clothes for ourselves in more or less standard sizes and wear them the same day if we like. This convenience of putting off-the-rack clothes on our backs is so ubiquitous that unless you're into fashion, you might not know that there's a term for it. Prêt-à-porter, or ready-to-wear. Someone in the fashion industry had to coin that term in the mid-20th century to distinguish factory-made clothes from the other way it had always been done, made to measure, by hand. In general, in the 19th century, you made your own clothes or a tailor did it for you. Have you ever made a shirt? Or sewn buttonholes by hand? Handmade clothing is labor-intensive, and was even more so in the days before sewing machines. In the 1860s, especially on the frontier, clothing held a different value than it does now. There was a steady demand for second-hand clothing, which was often altered to fit the new wearer. Jean-Baptiste was undoubtedly helping to fill a demand. It was his methods that got people's knickers in a twist. Jean-Baptiste was located and questioned, and he made no effort to negate the evidence, and indeed readily confessed. Officer Heath, who had a daughter buried in the city cemetery, struggled to contain his own instinct to violence until the grave robber swore he'd never touched the child's grave. The rest of the public was less temperate. News of the discovery spread quickly, outrage bloomed, and Heath found himself obliged to protect Jean-Baptiste from a lynching. Theft, in and of itself, wasn't a capital crime, but the citizenry was calling for Jean-Baptiste's execution for having violated the sanctity of those graves. Which, so far as I can tell, wasn't a capital crime either, but the people of Salt Lake wanted his head. I think any of us would be upset if someone dug up a loved one to take things from their grave, but this went beyond one beloved uncle. As authorities sorted through the sartorial plunder from Jean-Baptiste's home, they estimated he had taken clothing and jewelry from at least 300 individuals in just a couple of years. In 1861, Salt Lake City was barely 14 years old, an infant of a city, 
but Frontier Life was unforgiving. Nearly everyone had someone buried in that cemetery, dead who had all passed within recent memory. Add to that the early Mormon tendency to severity. When the Mormons packed their wagons for their exodus, they tucked their sober New England Protestant values between the flour barrels and brought them west. They had strict ideas about what was sacred, and the hollowed ground of Christian graves was high on that list. They were a relatively homogenous religious community, and didn't always distinguish between what was sacred because of faith and what was sacred because of cultural background noise. The violent feelings towards John Baptiste came down to this. His acts weren't simple theft, and they were worse than crimes against property. He had repeatedly defiled dedicated ground for the most profane of reasons to make money, and in the minds of the community, he had committed a sacrilege. This insult was too personal to too many of them to be tolerated. Jean-Baptiste had desecrated the bodies and the peace of the dead, and as a consequence might suffer death himself, and likely an undignified treatment of his own remains. It's unclear exactly what happened then, except that Jean-Baptiste wasn't lynched. He was arrested, but any records for arraignment, trial, and sentencing are missing. He did receive a sentence, perhaps not from the proper authority, and it was hardly better than death. When the mob was finally calmed, it was by the mitigating influence of the church's leader and prophet, Brigham Young. Young was an outspoken, sometimes stubborn convert from Vermont, who had taken the reins of leadership after Joseph Smith, the church's founder, was assassinated in Illinois in 1844. Young was severe compared to Smith's warmth, but it was Young's steadiness at such a chaotic time that held the church together and brought them across the wilderness. In the case of Jean-Baptiste, Young pacified the people of Salt Lake, assuring them that their beloved dead would be received into heavenly rest regardless of what they wore or didn't. The clothes and personal effects retrieved from Jean-Baptiste's hoard were laid out in City Hall on display, where anxious families could claim anything that had belonged to their dead. A pit, like a mass grave, was dug for the remaining clothes in the same cemetery where they were interred together. Young also argued against a death sentence for Jean-Baptiste, not for reasons of forgiveness and rehabilitation, but because he opined that simple death was too good for someone guilty of such monstrous deeds. He advocated instead for exile, and because Young's words dictated it, that was Jean-Baptiste's fate, to live out his days alone on an isolated island in the hostile expanse of the Great Salt Lake. In spite of his exile, which theoretically would have cut him off from human contact, Jean-Baptiste was sentenced to receive a tattoo on his forehead, reading, Grave Robber, or according to some tellings, the more verbose, For Robbing the Dead. It strikes me as overkill, but perhaps that was the point. Humiliation, with the knowledge that his crime was literally written on his face. The newly tattooed prisoner, with a few supplies, was rowed out into the lake to his desolate new home. If you didn't know, the Great Salt Lake is a terminal lake, which means that water flows in but not out, so the mineral load stays trapped in the lake, making it saltier and denser even than seawater. You can't drink the water, and there are no fish to speak of. 
The animal life in the lake consists of shorebirds and brine shrimp and assorted saline-tolerant microorganisms. The lake is also exceptionally shallow, so runoff and evaporation have a greater influence on the shoreline and on the surface area. The number and size of islands in the lake depends on the water level, but a few are large and constant. The islands are hilly and treeless, made of rock and scrub, blown with fine grains of salts and sand. A few of the islands are large enough to shelter little meadows with real grass in their middles, and from time to time people have kept livestock there. One of the larger islands, at around four and a half square miles, is Fremont Island, named for the Western explorer John C. Fremont. From the center of the lake, it's to the east and slightly to the south. In the early 1860s, a pair of brothers named Miller kept sheep and cattle there. That's where Jean-Baptiste was taken. The Miller brothers came to the island periodically to check on their herds, and there was a little shack at the edge of a pasture where Jean-Baptiste could take shelter. Every few weeks, the Millers would bring him food, water, and other basic supplies. Except for the sheep and cattle, he would be alone on the barren island. The sun would beat down on him. The wind, gritty with salt and sand, would blast him. The salt would get into the fresh wounds on his forehead. He would have to ration his fresh water and food, being always aware of the degree of his thirst, his hunger. He had nothing to fill his time, no human company to help him through the days. It was to be a bitter, lonely exile. Only it didn't quite work out that way. Mere weeks into his sentence, Jean-Baptiste was gone, disappeared with barely a trace. The Miller brothers went out to resupply him and tend to their herds, and he was nowhere on the island. More telling, they found one of their heifers slaughtered, her skin removed. Several boards were missing from the walls of the little shelter. They assumed that Jean-Baptiste had used these pieces to make a raft to attempt an escape. Is it possible he drowned in that attempt? It is. But since he was never seen again, and that includes a body, it's tempting to assume he made it. There are problems with this explanation. The lake is huge, and Fremont Island is far from the nearest shore. That's part of why they chose it for Jean-Baptiste's exile. A raft made of weathered boards and cowhide would have been unwieldy, and it's doubtful he had anything to row with. The simple task of keeping himself pointed towards the shore, much less propelling himself in that direction, would have been a significant challenge. He would have had to contend with the saline water as well, and altered buoyancy. There were so many factors working against him. Of course, he also had endless lonely hours to think, to work out the kinks in any plan. He might have made it off the island, and he might even have made it to shore. But where would he have gone? The point of the forehead tattoo was to make it impossible, or at least extremely difficult, for him to mingle in society. Could he have gone somewhere to be a hermit? Where? Certainly, most any place, even in the desert west, was more livable than a sun-scorched island surrounded by toxic salinity, where he depended on others for all his resources. 
If he managed to escape, perhaps he did hole up somewhere as a hermit. Perhaps he wandered, never staying long in one place. In the years following his disappearance, he was supposedly sighted in Arizona, Montana, and elsewhere in Utah, but never for long enough to be apprehended, if it was him. That rootlessness was already an established pattern in his life. The scant historical details we do have hint that Jean-Baptiste was a solitary type, already accustomed to being alone. That doesn't mean he preferred it, though. If Jean-Baptiste had been lonely before, the experiences and marks he'd gotten in Salt Lake could only have exacerbated his social isolation. And perhaps he wasn't out wandering somewhere. Perhaps he was simply dead. Some said he'd been already half-mad when he was caught, and that the harsh isolation of his exile had finished the job. Maybe, in a desperate and delusional state, he wandered into the water and drowned. Or maybe, in a completely lucid but suicidal state, he deliberately went out into the water and drowned. There was no shortage of stones on the island for pocket-filling. In the end, nobody knew Jean-Baptiste's fate, and as outrage gave way to speculation, he became a campfire tale. There were even whispers that his restless spirit wandered the southern and eastern shores of the Great Salt Lake. Decades later, in the early 1890s, two distinct sets of human skeletal remains were found along the lakeshore. They were found in different spots and a few years apart, but both were proposed, at least temporarily, to be Jean-Baptiste's remains. In 1890, a group of hunters found a human skull on a marshy stretch of the southern shore, about 30 miles over the water from Fremont Island. Jean-Baptiste's name was tossed around in connection to it, but there were features of the skull inconsistent with Baptiste's physique. No source I read specified what the differences were, but I wonder if the skull wasn't female or possessed more teeth than he had had in life. In 1893, the topic of the mystery skull resurfaced when a partial skeleton was found a few miles down the shore. This new specimen lacked its skull and wore leg irons. Naturally, this excited old memories of Jean-Baptiste and of the more recent skull from three years before. Officer Henry Heath was still around and clarified that Jean-Baptiste had never been shackled. The leg irons were not his. The skeleton was not Jean-Baptiste. Which begs the question, whose skeletons were those, then? Jean-Baptiste is still sighted on the south shore of the Great Salt Lake, albeit in spectral rather than skeletal form. If you see a dim, old-fashioned lantern moving near the shore through the dark, see if you can get a closer look. If he lifts it near to his face, you might spy the damning words inked into his skin or he may cover his forehead with a hat or his shaggy hair. He wears work clothes and heavy work boots. You can also identify him by the shovel he carries. Perhaps he's still consigned to digging graves. Those who've seen him say he carries other people's clothing with him, a dress or a pair of trousers gently draped over his forearm or shoulder. Whether he turns to cast his despondent gaze on you or not, you'll feel him first. 
he is said to exude a resigned, slightly bitter sadness, even hopelessness. His ghostly strolls along the marshy shore are a reminder that when your time comes, your body and its effects may not be safe in their resting place. He'll turn his gaze back to the lake and continue along the strand. You'll blink or look away for a moment, and he and his lantern will be gone. The strange tale of Jean-Baptiste still gets campfire time when Salt Lakers settle in to tell spooky stories. A handful of haunted city tours make stops at the old city cemetery, including Jean-Baptiste's little shack that's been either restored or reproduced. By twilight or moonlight, actors lower their voices to relate the history and the legend. The audience is drawn in by sympathy for this awkward, lonely outsider, and simultaneously repelled by the gruesomeness of his morbid side hustle. Because who does that? The cemetery is in the old downtown part of the city, and you can't see the lake from there. But when you do get out to the lake, its vastness and emptiness are imposing. When you look across the water through the haze to the low-lying islands, the sympathy for Jean-Baptiste returns, and despite the alien beauty, you can feel the dread. The story of Jean-Baptiste serves as inspiration for creative types, too, and I don't mean grave desecrators who call it performance art. In a local weird fiction anthology, a short story by James D. Beers called Retribution imagines Jean-Baptiste not as a ghost, but tormented by them. Since he's on an island, there's no escaping them. Far from weird fiction, a 2011 film called Redemption for Robbing the Dead reimagines the story from Officer Henry Heath's perspective. Writer-director Thomas Russell uses the events as a vehicle for introspection and, as the title suggests, redemption. He takes a few liberties to tell the story, but it works, and both Heath and Jean-Baptiste are portrayed sympathetically. I, for one, prefer the image of a spectral Jean-Baptiste, shovel and lantern in hand, lurking the liminal space between land and water, between the street and the grave, between the living and the dead. The ghost tour guides tell us that his ghost serves to remind us not to rest easy, that even in our graves we're open to intrusion and to trespass. I'd rather think of him as a reminder that we can't judge someone until we've walked in their shoes. Or in this case, walked a while in their stolen dead man's suit. I'm Adrienne Montoya, and you're listening to Southwest Gothic. Thanks for joining me for another strange and spooky tale from the American Southwest. For more information, including bibliographic information on the story and the film, visit southwestgothic.com and check out the show notes under the Notes and Credits tab. You can follow the show on Facebook at Southwest Gothic Podcast or on Instagram at southwest.gothic. You can also now subscribe to the show on both Google Music and Spotify with iTunes availability coming soon. I'll be back in two weeks with another strange and spooky Southwestern story for you. Thanks for listening.